feel like I've been here before. The roads turn to gravel, and I can see truck tire lines. The provincial authorities have threatened to pave this road since they first built it in 1997. But I like it as it is. It's not often you find a main road that's not paved, though I guess it's more common at this latitude. I don't know if I've ever been this far north before. This has to be further north than St. Petersburg. It sure feels more desolate. That's what I think the north should be. Tundra, basically. Next to the road, there's an orange sign that shows a man holding a shovel. When you have a gravel road, I guess you gotta dig sometimes. Does the man on the sign ever get tired of digging? I would. When he's here, next to his sign, he has to carry his own provisions. There's no food or fuel for 250 miles. It's pure wilderness, from Happy Goose Valley Bay to Cartwright. I don't know if a car will stop. There aren't too many coming by. None I've seen today. But one does stop. Eventually. I see it coming from far away. So far that I have time to get up and wait. Alice Waters, the legendary chef and owner of Chez Panisse, was a hitchhiker once, so she stops for hitchhikers. She stops right in the middle of the gravel road. There's no need to worry about oncoming traffic. There is none. You rode your bike down to the freeway. No lock or anything. Just <laughs> leaned it against the wall, put your thumb out, and went to the city. Was there a cultural moment where you felt in 1964 something that happened where you were like, now this is possible? You know, now that I'm thinking about it, it was more the spirit of the Beatles when they did Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart from Band. I think... It was later, more like 66. But I was there during the free speech movement in Berkeley. And we all had a kind of kinship. Everybody who was <laughs> demonstrating for free speech. And we kind of trusted each other in this great way. I know I never thought about locking the door of my house or locking up my bicycle, which is kind of hard to imagine right now but i would you know when i got back in the city my bike would be there and i'd get on my bike and ride home and so when you took that abroad when you went to france for the first time was it the done thing in france you know i think it must have been because i felt really comfortable about doing it and i always did it with friends though i have to say we would take the metro out to the end of the line. And then we just go to the main street and put our thumbs out. <laughs> what was the end of the line like back then? Because I've hitchhiked out of Paris in the last couple of years, and it's <laughs> there are a lot of cars. They move pretty fast at this yeah. point. It wasn't like that then. It wasn't. There was kind of the one main street out of town, a two-way street, and you just... I mean, maybe, no, we didn't take the train so much, but truckers picked us up 
and we didn't speak much French, but they knew what we were asking <laughs> for a ride. And it was very lucky we never had any really uncomfortable experiences. And sometimes people would ask us, do you want to stop by? And I live over there, and do you want to stop and have lunch with my family or something like that? We'd say, well, we got to go on. And <laughs> we didn't take advantage of that. But I felt there was some kind of reciprocal hospitality. Were you looking at a map to figure out like a name of a, the sort of direction that you were going, or were you... Just oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> we were hitching out to Brittany, uh-huh. okay. is what I remember most, because there wasn't a train that really got you all the way out there, and so the main lines sort of took you partway up by the train, and then you just need to get all the way out there to the end. So we did a lot of hitchhiking in Brittany. Were the truckers, when you did communicate with them, was that sort of hand motions like? (laughs) Well, I mean, we knew a little bit more French than that, or at least my friend Sarah did. (laughs) I mean, we were theoretically in France to study French culture. And did you learn anything about French culture from meeting just random truckers or people on the road that you wouldn't have (laughs) if you'd stayed in Paris? Do you know, I learned more about French culture without going to school than I could have ever imagined. And ultimately, I got my degree in Berkeley at the university in French cultural history from 1750 to 1850, it was called a field major at that time. But I just fell in love with everything from the food to the churches to the music to the big picture of beauty. And I mean, that's where I wanted to live my life when I came back home. Yeah. Were there any food experiences that you had while hitchhiking that made an impression? It was an awakening for me. I felt like I'd never eaten anything before. (laughs) All of a sudden, I was tasting that fraise de bois, (laughs) and I just wanted to know where it came from. And I discovered it was a wild strawberry and could only go find them in the woods, in the mountains. And, And it was that kind of curiosity that I had about everything I put in my mouth. Who made this? (laughs) Where can I find it again? And it was at a time in France when you go to the market and it only had the food that was locally grown. Even there weren't things from the south of France. You were eating food from the north of France maybe as far as the English Channel, but not very much farther than that. And were you stopping in small markets in Brittany along the way? Oh, yes. (laughs) We went to every market. (laughs) First thing you do when you get to a town. Everyone. I just became a marketeer, and we always carried bags with us. 
we knew we could find, you know, a baguette and some beautiful cheeses. One time we just stopped by the side of the road and had a picnic under an apple tree. I remember that. The blossoms were falling on our lunch. And it was one of those magical moments. But I can certainly romanticize hitchhiking. <laughs> were there any less romantic aspects? Were there any times when you got stuck in a place that you were like, oh, I, I want to get to the next place as soon as possible? Oh, I'm sure we had a few of those. <laughs> but we never had plans that were so fixed that we couldn't adjust them. We always took a baguette along with us. And, and so you were never worried about being hungry quite. There were always little cafes and very often, that was a place that you could hitchhike from. Oh, interesting. Like outside, people parked or something, you would ask them, which way are you going? Or... Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. <laughs> Did you ever get recommendations of which way to go or where to go from the people you were riding with? Oh, absolutely. Some people are picking us up to have somebody else in the car, and so... We were asked a lot of questions, <laughs> and we asked a lot of questions as well. I was about what's the best place to eat. <laughs> when you got back to California, did the hitchhiking you'd done in France inform the way that you were hitchhiking in California? Well, I was always hitchhiking from that point on. I never had a car until around 1970. Did you end up hitchhiking after that, or were you like, I'm now on the driver's side of things, I'll be the person picking up hitchhikers? <laughs> well, I had to become on the driver's side because I opened the restaurant in 71, and so I had to go and pick up food, and go to farm stands, and all of the above. So that kind of ended that period of time of being dependent <laughs> On the kindness of strangers. <laughs> Were there still hitchhikers that you saw around Berkeley going towards, say, the farms? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think that that continued on into the 70s, but ended during the really, the really big anti-war demonstrations. And I think people were less open to picking up just anybody after the political moment of the Vietnam War? Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Do you think that sort of communitarian idea that you picked up with the free speech movement and sort of brought into your hitchhiking is also what informs your idea of people eating together? Probably in a way. I used to go to restaurants where you sat at a big table, like mm. the French Hotel in San Francisco in the 70s, and you just would go in and have whatever they served, and that was whomever was there. And I still, when there's this sort of hitchhiking more organized in Berkeley now, where you can stop in front of the BART station, and there's a line of people, and you can pick them up and take them to San Francisco. And I always do that. <laughs> so it's sort of a karmic paying it back or paying it forward. Yeah, 
that crocheting, but it's not quite as friendly because you're not supposed to talk <laughs> and you're supposed to give the other passion to some car kind of space. Mm. Were there any people that you found surprising or any of the rides you had that were with very memorable people? We got one ride in Brittany that took us to this little French restaurant near a river outside of the big city because they thought we would like it. And it turned out to be the most memorable meal I had in France. And it really was the meal that inspired me to open Chibani because it was in a house like Chibani. And I had kind of one of those revelatory experiences where, you know, you eat a meal and then you realize that everything you ate was from right there, that they made it. So the melons were from their garden, the ham they made right there. We had a trout from the stream Hmm. and... We had a raspberry tart, and they had raspberry bushes. <laughs> and actually, there was a woman who was the chef. <laughs> no, it just—I mean, it was delicious, and it was so rare when the French uh, exclaim about a meal. They always say, "Oh, it was pretty good," but they never gave raves. Hmm. And that was one of those moments, and probably. Part of what impressed me, for sure, was they clapped when the chef came out in the dining room. Did the person who told you to go there also join you for that meal? or No, they just dropped us off. But it was a sort of reliance on local expertise that brought you to the local food. Yeah, it was local expertise that brought us there. We never would have found that, I don't think, on our own. We were looking for Gauguin boss or something out there. <laughs> Has traveling in that way back then influenced the way you've traveled since? Yeah. I always love to have people in car. I'm not somebody who likes to drive without friends. And I don't know whether it's from those first experiences, but I'm always inclined to pick up somebody. If they don't look too desperate, and we're going the same way, I would do it now. I've seen that your daughter has also written a bit about travel. Has she ever hitchhiked, as far as you know? (laughs) I think probably not. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she has grown up in another world. She's very concerned about locking doors and cars and being suspicious. Mm. And I'm not naturally that way and I think it does come from that period of time of people trusting one another in the 60s helping one another and hitchhiking was all part of that I'd love to go there again and who knows maybe this pandemic will engender that yeah people having been separated for so long that they'll sort of long for a return to community I mean, just even saying hello to my neighbor across the street is so great. (laughs) I'm planting his garden and I'm planting mine. 
I mean, we've just all slowed down. And we're home. We're saying hi to each other when we're going on a walk. And that's new. Very new. And maybe that needs to... Well, we have to build trust. And I think it takes an enlightened public education system that teaches us when we're very young to trust each other. We have to build that trust. And the messages that come from the government don't trust anybody. Do you think rebellion against those messages was a big thing? Because the way, at least I imagine the 50s is, you know, Cold War mindset sort of (laughs) hiding under a desk in terms of uh, a drill, uh, (laughs) a sort of lack of trust. Do you think that had to be flipped in that moment or was that there from your childhood? Yes, yes. I did hide down on my desk because we had to, but that really got flipped in the 60s for me. I just felt like, whoa, you know, kind of empowerment and very, very important. I felt like I could open the restaurant because if it was good, people would come. They would come because I was trying to do something right, and they wanted to support me. And we sure need that right now. We really need that. I think there's also been a return to interest and mutual aid among young people, especially with all of the protests going on now. Yes, I think so, too. Now, I was so pleased that my daughter has gone to the protests, and she's gone by herself. I was so surprised that she was committed in that way. Finally, a town. Cartwright is the last town before the land ends and the water begins. The road only made it out here in 2002. It's still a rugged little fishing village. There's a gas station and a church, but no bank. I'm staying in the only motel. There used to be another one, but it burnt down in 2013. Cartwright's mayor told a CBC journalist at the time that firefighters couldn't save the hotel because they were worried that a propane tank in the kitchen would explode. Though she admitted there were other reasons, too. Basically, she said, they had a really old fire truck that needed to be replaced, and no money in the town to replace it. The surviving motel has six rooms. It's tiny and grubby by those charred standards, but it's a place I haven't been in a while. The great indoors. And I'm badly in need of a shower. Got almost 1,800 miles of sweat to wash off. I was told in a strong Labradorian accent that there's a pub under the rooms. But I'm not feeling very social. I need to think. How do I get further north? Where do I go? The motel faces the harbor. I guess I'll try my luck tomorrow. Downstairs, the sailors and sea captains sing shanties. And they float up through the floorboards.